joining us. Happy New Year and welcome everybody to the first edition of the Complexity Premier podcast for 2024. Uh, Yingers, Baby River under control. Happy New Year to you too, Chris and everyone. Yes, Baby River is under control, although he is fast approaching becoming a toddler now. Terrible twos, here we come, years. Now, let's crack on. We've got a fairly full agenda for this episode of the podcast. Um, Yingers, why don't you kick us off with just a summary of the month of December for 2023, so last month, and any kind of salient performance uh, reflections? Yeah, so Chris, look, in the month of December, Coolabar's portfolios continue to generate strong risk-adjusted excess returns, or alpha, as a function of both assets selection and primary and secondary trading opportunities, which have been pronounced since June 2022. The best performing strategy in the month was actually Coolabar's long-duration daily liquidity global credit fund known as the Pacific Coolabar Global Active Credit Fund, which returned 3.63% in December, and that's in Aussie dollar hedge terms, and has delivered 7.92%, which is non-analyzed, since its launch on the 10th of October 2023. This solution has outperformed the benchmark Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index's 7.16% return in Aussie dollar hedge terms by 0.76% after fees and it has an average triple B plus credit rating and 6.1 years of interest rate duration. Yeah, Yingers, it's been a great start for our first global fund, which is actually denominated in euros, US dollars, sterling and Aussie dollars. So there's many different uh, currencies that you can get exposure to through that fund. Um, Are there any other solutions or strategies that you think are worthwhile citing in terms of 2023 outcomes, Yingers? Yeah, so Chris, look, not far behind the global active credit fund was Coolabar's long duration daily liquidity active composite bond fund, which returned 3.2%. 3% net in December, exceeding the benchmark Osborne Composite Bond Index's 2.69% return by 0.54% after fees. Over the 2023 calendar year, the Active Composite Bond Fund returned 10.22% after fees, outperforming the Composite Bond Index's 5.06% result by 5.17%. And this strategy has an average A plus credit rating, it has five years of interest rate duration, and an average MSCI E. ESG rating of AA as well. Then there was Coolabar's Zero Duration Daily Liquidity Long Short Credit Fund, which has an average A-plus credit rating and an average MSCI ESG rating of AA. That returned 1.41 to 1.43% net of fees. And over the 2023 year, the Long Short Credit Fund delivered 13.36 to 13.55% net of fees. The Kiwi and US dollar hedge versions of the fund returned 15.66% and 14.4%. 6% respectively net of fees. The end of 2023 also marks the inaugural year of performance for Coolabar's zero duration daily liquidity floating rate high yield fund, which has an average credit rating of A and an average MSCI ESG rating of AA. Now, the floating rate high yield fund returned 1.21% net of fees in December and 1209 to 12.32% net of fees over the 12 months of 2023. And finally, Coolabar's lower volatility strategies, or in fact, they're our lowest volatility strategies, I should say, uh, the zero duration and daily liquidity smarter money and short-term income funds return 0.72% and 0.69% respectively net of fees in December 
outperforming the Osborne floating rate note index, which appreciated 0.51%, and the RBA cash rate, which yielded 0.34%. Over the 2023 year, the Smarter Money Fund and Short-Term Income Fund returned 6.5% and 6.36% after fees, respectively, compared to the Osborne FRN index's 5.07% and the RBA cash rate's 3.83%. These strategies have average credit ratings of A and average MSCI ESG ratings of AA. Now, as always, um, please note that past performance is no guide to future returns and listeners slash investors should read the product disclosure statements to better understand the risks. Now, Chris, I think it would be instructive to look back on 2023 and then cast our minds forward to 2024 this year to what might come to pass. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, Ying is, I think that's a, a good idea. You know, perhaps one of the best indicators of the roller coaster ride in expectations and volatility last year was the striking movement in 10 year government bond yields. The US 10 year Treasury yield fluctuated from a low of just 3.3% around the time of the Credit Suisse collapse to a high of circa 5% in October after some upside inflation surprises and hawkish sentiments emanating out of the Fed. Ying is what was kind of amazing is that in the final analysis, the US 10-year Treasury yield actually finished 2023 exactly where it started at the beginning of the year at precisely 3.88%. And there were similar dynamics at play with modest calendar year movements in 10-year government bond yields in Australia, where our yield moved uh, from 4.05% down to 3.96%. In New Zealand, where the 10-year yield traversed from 4.47% to 4.37%. And in Britain, where the 10-year yield started at 3.67% at the beginning of 2023 and finished at 3.54%. So really not materially different. Importantly, two significant exceptions to this observation were, of course, German and Italian 10-year government bond yields, which respectively finished 55 and 103 basis points lower over 2023. Yes, Chris, that's right. But In the month of December, long-term risk-free rates plunged as global inflation data surprised on the downside, and that was a result of goods disinflation, or in some cases, outright goods deflation. And we actually saw the price of oil also slump by 6 to 7%. Now, the all-important US 10-year Treasury yield fell 45 basis points in the month of December, which helped drag down yields in Germany, which was down 42 basis points, in Australia, which was down 45 basis points, Italy, which was down 54 basis points, New Zealand, by 55 basis points, and in Britain, where yields were down 64 basis points. And this powered the rally in the value of fixed rate bonds, also known as duration. Yes, Yingers, that's right. And that's also why, as you mentioned earlier, our global credit fund, which is long duration, was up 3.6%, or actually a little bit more than that, net of fees in the month. And our domestic equivalent, Coolabar's active composite bond fund, was up more than 3.2% net in the month of December. So it's really a function of uh, that sudden reduction in long-term interest rates in the month that pushed up the value of fixed rate bonds, notably not floating rate bonds, which also did perform well in December. Of course, we also had significant asset selection alpha from our own trading activities in both those strategies in December, which is why they materially outperform their benchmarks. So Yinga's lower discount rates, which is what we were just talking about, and perhaps some window dressing into year end by investors who were overweight stocks, both contributed to the rebound in speculative asset classes in December with very significant total returns reported by the S&P 500, which was up 4.54%, the Euro stocks 50 
which was up 3.22%. The FTSE 100 up 3.85%. The NASDAQ 100 up 5.56%, Aussie shares, which are up 7.43%, and Bitcoin, which rallied 11.08%. In our markets, both cash bond and synthetic credit spreads compressed sharply in December in sympathy with the broader risk rally. So credit spreads on the main synthetic investment grade credit default swap or CDS indices in the US and Europe were six basis points and 10 basis points tighter in December, respectively. In the much riskier high-yield bond market, spreads on the key US and European CDS indices contracted by 46 basis points and 63 basis points over the month. Over 2023, spreads on the core investment grade CDS benchmarks in the US and Europe shrank by 25 basis points and 32 basis points respectively. In the high yield CDS market, the US and European indices profited from much larger spread reductions of 128 basis points and 164 basis points respectively. In the underlying physical cash credit market, Investment grade corporate bond spreads declined in December in the US, where they were down five basis points, in Britain, where they fell nine basis points, in Europe, where they also fell nine basis points, and in Australia, where they declined 11 basis points. And this explained the very healthy performance of floating rate bond benchmarks in the month. Looking back over the last year, physical IG credit spreads fell by 30 basis points in Europe, 31 basis points in the US, 50 basis points in Australia, and by 55 basis points in Britain. Alongside the duration rally, this contributed to the global benchmark, which is the Bloomberg Global Aggregate Corporate Index, uh, returning 7.03% in 2023 when hedged back into Aussie dollars. Turning to the domestic bond market, Yingers, five-year Aussie major bank senior bond spreads compressed by only one basis point in December. We did, however, see outperformance from additional tier one hybrids and T2 bonds issued by the major banks, where they experienced spread reductions of 11 basis points and 12 basis points, respectively, in the month. Over the course of 2023, T2 has generally outperformed both the major bank senior bonds and their hybrids, with five-year major bank T2 spreads contracting by a non-trivial 57 basis points over the year. In contrast, spreads on five-year major bank senior bonds rather than T2 bonds only fell by 10 basis points over this interval. And the real laggard has actually been the ASX hybrid market where five-year major bank uh, spreads on hybrids actually increased rather than decreased by 29 basis points in 2023 from 230 basis points over BBSW to 259 basis points over BBSW, where of course BBSW is the quarterly bank bill swap rate. And this spread widening in the hybrid market taxed its relative returns in that sector. That's right, Chris. And as at the end of 2023, the major banks' senior bonds remained historically cheap compared to their long-term trading ranges. Spreads on T2 bonds were still well wide of the types of 2021 and broadly in line with the through-the-cycle fair value estimates. In contrast, though, five-year major bank hybrid spreads were sitting about 65 basis points rich or inside their long-term averages, given the tendency of the listed market to focus on all-in yields instead of spreads, which are elevated at around 7%. I would note here for full disclosure that Coolabar manages BetaShare's full capital structure ETF solution, HBRD. And in 2023, we slashed the portfolio weight to hybrids from 80.5% to a record low 37.3%, conservatively shifting up the capital stack into T2 bonds and senior bonds issued by large banks and insurers. And this helped drive HBRD's substantial outperformance over various hybrid indices. 
after all retail fees, HBRD beat the broader Sol Active Hybrids Index by 0.64% and the Sol Active Major Bank Hybrids Index by 0.86% in 2023. Before fees, HBRD outperformed these two indices by 1.21% and 1.43% respectively. And this is an important strategic goal for this strategy, delivering investors superior returns when the hybrid market underperforms, which is what HBRD did in 2023 last year. And it has done so during extreme stress events like March 2020, if you recall. Now, Chris, can we cast our minds to 2024? What are you thinking? Yes, as well, this is obviously a crucial question. And what we know is that market expectations for interest rate cuts in 2024, which have really underpinned the massive risk rally into the end of the year, appear in our view priced for perfection. And crucially, Yingers don't really seem to allow for any upside surprises to core inflation outcomes this year or next. The European Central Bank is forecast to furnish 150 basis points of rate cuts in 2024, followed by the Fed, which is projected to cut rates by 140 basis points, the Bank of Canada, which markets think will cut by 130 basis points, the Bank of England, which is also priced to cut by 130 bips, the RBNZ also at 130 bips, and the RBA, which is a bit of a standout, which only has currently 55 basis points of cuts priced into its curve. Naturally, this is because you know there is a school of thought that the RBA is behind the curve and that we will face stickier and more stubborn inflation pressures here in Australia, particularly given our cash rates only at 4.35% compared to the 5 to 5.5% range in countries like New Zealand, Canada, the US and Britain. Another key anomaly here is, of course, the preternaturally dovish Bank of Japan, which is projected to lift rates by 20 basis points in 2024. So it's not priced to cut because rates are currently at a negative level. So yeah, Ying, as, as we turn to focus on 2024, the biggest questions really surround destinies that are divine for goods as opposed to services inflation. And of course, the burgeoning geopolitical risks as the world continues to cleave into competing authoritarian and democratic blocs led by the US and China. Foreign hazards have been underscored by the tragic conflicts in Europe and the Middle East, pitching the Ukrainian and Israeli democracies on the one hand against the kleptocratic Russian dictatorship and terrorists backed by the misanthropic Iranian theocracy on the other hand. A key concern that we have here is, is that as countries like China, Russia, Iran and North Korea suffer inexorable decline as they're marginalised from our liberal democratic markets, their leaders may engage in extreme and possibly irrational, measures to safeguard their own security. And I guess this begs the question, at what point do wars with the Ukraine, Israel and or Taiwan tip the world into a cataclysmic crisis? I intimated a moment ago that battle lines are also being drawn in the economic domain between the contrasting influences of deflating goods, inflation on the one hand, versus recalcitrant services inflation on the other. Everywhere we look, we see headline and core inflation rates that are declining, but that's really as a function of goods disinflation or in the US goods deflation. Whereas this is a reversal of the acute goods inflation that we experienced during the pandemic when we shut down supply chains, and it's a temporary source of downward pressure on prices, demand-side services inflation remains quite robust, and it's likely to exert a more persistent influencing us on prices unless employment weakens, labor productivity improves, and or wage growth attenuates. And we'd note that there are further ubiquitous risks to supply-side inflation posed by geopolitical ructions such as the potential closure of shipping lanes in the Red Sea and never-ending, it seems, threats to petroleum production. And our reckoning is that investors appear very insouciant to the consequences 
of these cross currents. And they seem to have instead swallowed the quote-unquote immaculate disinflation thesis, hook, line, and sinker. Bond yields have plummeted of late, and stocks are soaring as markets lead to the heroic conclusion that central banks have prevailed in their struggle against the biggest inflation crisis in decades. What none of us know, Ying, is, is precisely how this will play out over 2024. If rampant services inflation doesn't dissipate and drives upside surprises to core consumer price indices next year, central banks are naturally going to find it very difficult to entertain uh, much interest rate relief. The problem is that markets have indeed priced in very large rate cuts from you know, most central banks. And yet there's an even money possibility that stubborn inflation outcomes prevent these central banks from meeting market expectations. I agree, Chris. And you know what? This could coalesce with the souring of underlying economic conditions as the huge cash buffers that consumers have built up during the pandemic gradually disappear. Households have spent much of this money over 2022 and 2023 underwriting growth and helping businesses withstand the extraordinary interest rate increases. I think you're right, Yingers. And if investors are lucky, which they may be, they will get immaculate disinflation. They'll see deep rate cuts and benign soft landings. But Yingers, if history and our modelling is any guide, rates are likely to remain high for longer than markets expect and recessions will likely ensue as persistent inflation problems warrant a negative demand shock you know, through the high for longer paradigm in order for central banks to hit their legislated price stability targets. Here, I think Yingers, it's sobering to recall that investors have consistently underestimated the magnitude of the current inflation shock and the rate rises that we needed to get it under control. And so we continue to advocate seeking the safety of highly rated liquid assets that are insulated from cyclical default risks and the extreme mispricings that currently plague illiquid investments, such as private equity, venture capital, and any exposures, be they through you know, high yield debt, private credit, or equity to uh, commercial real estate and residential developers. Hey, Chris, and while we're on the outlook for 2024, I want to remind listeners that the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA, is reviewing the possibility of raising the equity capital ratio threshold, at which point hybrids automatically convert into ordinary shares. So since 2013, this has been calibrated at a common equity T1 or CET1 capital ratio of 5.125%. Given the dramatic improvement in CET1 ratios, there are sensible reasons why APRA might want to lift the trigger level higher on a globally harmonised basis. Any prospective changes, though, will only apply to new hybrids, not existing securities, and will not be finalised until later this year. But if new bank hybrids issued after 2024 carry higher equity conversion probabilities, Coolabar's modelling implies that these securities should command wider credit spreads and higher yields as a result relative to incumbent assets. APRA has also further made the case that banks should be encouraged to do more issuance in the unlisted or over-the-counter market, OTC market, dominated by institutional investors. And Coolabar has long tried to convince the major banks to issue more OTC hybrids to complement their ASX supply. Only NAB has been persuaded. If there is extra OTC supply, this should come with more attractive spreads relative to ASX securities. If the NAB precedents are any indication, there would also be decent switching from ASX hybrids into the OTC alternatives, given that high net worth individuals who control the listed market are very active in the OTC space as well. There is an unusually large number of hybrid maturities this year, which will be supplemented by extra issuance from banks seeking to get ahead of average changes. 
All roads would therefore appear to lead to wider spreads this year. And with the RBA unlikely to cut interest rates anytime soon, this should mean superior yields. The principle of high yields should also apply to any illiquid asset in 2024. Yeah, I think this is a good note on which to segue to the point that this year should be much more challenging for those many vulnerable borrowers and cyclically sensitive companies that are relying very heavily on the extra cash savings they built up during the pandemic to insulate themselves from the impact of the enormous interest rate increases that have been imposed since late 2021 or 2022. Every week we're reading news reports, yingers of more and more business failure, sadly, with claims that defaults on business-to-business trade payments have jumped by 57%. Before the pandemic hit, Aussie businesses owed the ATO about $25 billion. Today, these liabilities have exploded to north of $50 billion, which is forcing the ATO to push firms into administration. And we're seeing in the ASIC data yingers that spiking Aussie insolvencies have hit their highest levels since 2015 and display no signs of slowing. Here, the canary in the coal mine might be our brethren over the ditch in New Zealand, where interest rates were aggressively lifted ahead of most of the rest of the world, commencing in October 2021 with the RBNZ hitting their peak rate, which is where it currently stands, of 5.5% in May 2023. The latest data that we're getting from New Zealand suggests that it may be the first advanced economy to enter into a bona fide stagflationary recession, quote-unquote. And what I mean by this is that the economic data out of New Zealand shows that GDP growth actually contracted 0.3% in the September quarter, and GDP also fell by 0.6% over the 12 months to September. Now, this conflicts strikingly with the RBNZ's forecasts. This is obviously the New Zealand Central Bank, which had expected GDP to rise by 0.3% over the September quarter and to increase by 0.6% over the 12 months to September. Employment in New Zealand also declined by 0.8% in the September quarter, which has helped push New Zealand's unemployment rate up from 3.2%, which was the cyclical low, to currently 3.9%. New Zealand Central Bank is projecting that the jobless rate will continue to ascend, unfortunately, to five and a quarter percent, which is a full percentage point above what the RBA assumes will happen here in Australia. That is to say, the RBA is asserting that unemployment in Australia will peak at just four and a quarter percent or thereabouts. And we'd have to say that um, this is all predicated in terms of the RBA's forecast on nothing short of immaculate disinflation really gripping, uh, which put differently is really hopium that inflation will magically disappear. The RBA's monetary policy approach uh, to date has really been to hope that the rest of the world will do the heavy lifting for it with interest rates. Uh, Normally, the RBA's cash rate, which is at 4.35% presently, Uh, sits about 150 basis points above the US equivalent rate, uh, which of course is at five and a quarter to 5.5%. So the RBA is banking on much tougher monetary policy overseas, bailing it out of strife. Now, Ying, as while it is entirely possible that the RBNZ will be the first advanced economy central bank to cut interest rates in 2024, the fact is that inflation remains highly problematic. It's currently running at 5.2%. Over the 12 months of September, according to the RBNZ's preferred sectoral factor model, and by also 5.2% on a six-month annualized basis using the core inflation or trimmed mean measure. And I'd note here that the RBNZ targets inflation of just 2%, not 5 to 6%. I think perhaps, seeing as I would conclude with the comment that this really highlights a central 
stagflationary risk that the entire world faces this year and in future years. While the global economy is all but certain to soften and serious distress is sure to spread, it may not be enough to snuff out that belligerent services inflation that poses so much risk to the outlook for consumer price indices over the coming years. For asset prices to be validated, what we really need is after the goods disinflation and deflation passes, which it will, like a pig through a python, we've used that characterization a few times on the podcast, I think he is, uh, we also want to see mean reversion in that services inflation down from you know four to six percent ranges towards two to three percent. And we have had lots of constructive positive news on both the goods and services inflation front out of the US, but the US to date has been the exception. For the sake of many investors, we hope market pricing is indeed vindicated. But the concern is that there are really significant latent downside risks. And as we've seen some of this play out already in 2024, where in the first week of the year, equities were hammered and bond yields spiked as investors were very nervous about some significantly positive data flows out of the US and also some relatively hawkish sentiments communicated by uh, several Fed speakers that rate cuts were not imminent. If you ever want to reach out and have a chat, we'd love to engage with you. You can send an email to info at coolerbycapital.com, no.au, and we'd be happy to jump on a call and address any questions you have. Thanks for your time. Happy New Year. And I hope everybody has a very prosperous 2024. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.